0: All right, let me read just from one verse very quickly. Uh, as my word, God says through Isaiah, as my word goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isaiah fifty-five eleven. 11. Uh, last time we were together, we started this series on trusting scripture in a secular age. And we looked at the fact that the Bible was inspired and what that means and and how that means so much more than just that uh, word might say on the surface and the challenges that we face in believing in an inspired text in 2023. And so we took on some of that. Today, we want to carry it one step further, which is not only to say the Bible is inspired, but also that it's true, which is a logical step from inspiration to simply say the Bible is also true. Now, that, that's where we really get into thorny issues and challenges from the age that we live in. And so we'll consider just a couple of those today, more later in the series. Uh, but the preview, what we really want to say today is that truth is more than historical reliability. So what it means to say that the Bible is true is much more than saying that the Bible got the facts of history right. Truth is, goes well beyond that. And so that's what we're going to see and talk about tonight. Uh, So the big claim, three things uh, very quickly, the the big claim that we like to make when we talk about the truth of the Bible is to say that it is inerrant. So the way that we express that statement is by saying the Bible is inerrant in our tradition. And so what I want to do is ask three questions about what that means. Uh, Truth as inerrancy, that the Bible is true, therefore, without error. What does that mean? Okay, and three things that we've got to say to to make that clear. All right, first, what is inerrancy? What is it? Okay, Um, inerrancy, very precisely, is the view, our view, the the church's view, that the Bible is without any errors in its autographs. That means the first forms. Uh, So it's not that there aren't discrepancies in the ESV, perhaps. It's that there are no errors in the original text that God gave through people, through Paul, through whoever. Now, what is that original text? What is the first time Isaiah was ever fully Isaiah? Well, it's hard to say because, of course, Isaiah didn't write Isaiah in a day, right? He wrote it over a long sequence and how it was transmitted and developed is hard for us to say. So that means that when we say something like the Bible is inerrant, It's not a position that we come to by empirical data. So in other words, we don't go through the Bible and study it verse by verse and say, I have concluded like a scientist that the Bible is inerrant. No. Why? Because what we're talking about are the originals. And so in other words, inerrancy is a doctrine of faith. We say it in faith. We say that if this is God's word, and we said that last time, that this is the word of God and the words of men then therefore it requires that we say it's true and inerrant. So it's a statement we make in faith, not a fact-finding mission. Okay, and so those are very different things. Now, oftentimes people challenge inerrancy and get that confused. Think that the only way you can establish inerrancy is if you go through the Bible and check for any possible discrepancies, word for word, verse for verse, manuscript for manuscript. And that's exactly the opposite of what we're saying. We're saying, no, not at all. Of course, we expect human beings that are messing around with it and translating it to make mistakes from time to time. We're talking about a doctrine of faith that the originals that God gave us because of who he is are therefore without errors. Okay, now, nevertheless, that also there's still some tricky bits left um, that still hasn't uh, given us everything we need to say about this doctrine. Before I I give it to you, let let me explore a counterclaim. So what's the challenge to this? Well, there's two popular ones. One I've already dealt with, and that's uh, popularly represented by a person like Bart Ehrman, a scholar at uh, UNC, uh, North Carolina in the United States. Ehrman claims that there are over 300 mistakes, errors in the New Testament. Okay, Um, And the problem, uh, the the simple thing we can say to Bart is that Matters of material discrepancy within the New Testament aren't what we're talking about. So what Ehrman's talking about is manuscript contradictions. This manuscript has the preposition of, this one has the preposition at. But when you look at almost all of them that Ehrman brings up, there's no substantial discrepancy. It doesn't change the meaning, right? Last time we talked about how the meaning of the Bible is not in every particular word. It's in the discourse. It's in what God's saying to us across the whole of the sentence. And so almost everything Ehrman points out can be easily dealt with. For that reason, Ehrman's claim that there are 300 mistakes in the New Testament is really not the challenge. Uh, The challenge to inerrancy instead comes from some people that are a little more thoughtful than Bart Ehrman. And what they'll say is inerrancy is a entirely modern idea. That ancient people, pre-modern people, ancient Near Eastern people just don't think in that way. So when we want to say the Bible's inerrant, it doesn't have any errors in it, we're thinking like a modern person, that an ancient person would have never, never expected the Bible to not have errors. So that's, that's the common claim. Why? Well, because they, they would say uh, modern people have the camera, you know, you have an iPhone. And ever since the 19th century, when we started recording things by camera, and then later by video camera, uh, we, ch- we changed the way we think about the world. And now what truth means for us is uh, eyewitness testimony, perfect evidence, video recordings, uh, innocent till proven guilty by some un- uh, undoubtable testimony, right? But that's just not how a premodern person thought about it. Premodern people were okay to say this is legend and truth at the same time. This never really happened, but at the same time, it's also true in a different sense. And <clears throat> we don't have time tonight, obviously, to to unpack all the ways we might we might think about that and speak about that, but. Uh, a, a wonderful book on this is Richard balkum's book, Jesus and the Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony. Uh, it's a wonderful book that explores this claim, uh, one of the best scholars in the world, and he really, really undermines this thesis in that book. So I, if you're looking for something more, I commend it to you. You can buy it from William over here, I'm sure, across the street. Um, but l- let me just say this. Did, did pre-modern peoples really think that? That's the real question. And here's Augustine. This is Augustine in in the 3rd century, the the late 3rd century, late 4th century, I should say. And Augustine says this, it seems to me that the most disastrous consequences must follow upon our believing anything false is to be found in the sacred books with regard to history. So Augustine, all the way back in the late 300s, says it would be disastrous to say that you can find anything historically false in the sacred books of Scripture. Now, he's not a modern person. He's a pre-modern person. He is, in fact, some would say an ancient person. And so it's just not true. And there's, there's a lot more evidence for that. Now, instead, uh, we can say, secondly, that we've got to think carefully, though, however, about what inerrancy really does mean. Okay, And let me give you a definition of what it, what it means. Uh, we, we've already said inerrancy is saying that the Bible doesn't have any errors in its originals, but, but we need to say more than that to hedge around other potential mistakes that might be made. All right, so here's something a little more precise. Inerrancy says that the Bible is true when God speaks the meaning God intends to speak. In other words, we read Isaiah 55:11, and it told us what inerrancy means. It says, my word goes forth And it accomplishes exactly what I intend it to accomplish. Inerrancy is the claim that everything God wants to say is true and that he has said it. He says things without fail. So whatever he wants to communicate in the text, he has communicated and it has no errors in it. No errors with respect to his intentions. Now, there's a very important reason that we put inerrancy in this frame. Uh, let me illustrate it. Um, we might, any Jane Austen readers, Jane Austen, yeah, a few, Siobhan, uh, others, yeah, um, I like Jane Austen, uh, Glennis, maybe you like Jane Austen, um, Jane Austen, <laughs> very famous, Pride and Prejudice, it is a truth universally, universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife, right? probably the most famous Austen line. Now, Kevin Van Hooser uses Austen to illustrate inerrancy. So he says, when you read an Austen line, an Austen line like that, we can say that Jane Austen writes prose divinely. She writes literature divinely, right? Uh, We cannot say that Jane Austen writes divine prose. So she writes prose divinely, but she doesn't write divine prose, right? Uh, divine prose is what the Bible gives you, and it's where God speaks and says exactly what he wants to say without fail, and that's inerrancy. Um, we It's the same thing we really said la- last week, that where is the inspiration located? The inspiration, uh, where is the Bible? The Bible is in the discourse that God intends. Therefore, we can translate it and it still be God's word, even though the Hebrews changed to English, the Greeks changed to English. And in the same way, inerrancy is not just the claim that the Bible says true things historically. It's much more than that. It's the claim that God says exactly what he intended to say and it does what he wants it to do without any failure. That's the doctrine of inerrancy, okay? Um, Now, let me lastly, and we'll be done, uh, just say a few things that make more sense of that and why that's so important. So the first is the nature of truth. So when we say that the Bible is inerrant, that God communicates everything he wants to communicate in the Bible without fail, uh, we say that because when you think about the nature of truth, you realize that you've got to say more than just that the Bible contains historical truths, right? Inerrancy has to be about more than just getting the facts of history right, uh, because if that's all it is, you leave out most of the passages of the Bible, right? Okay, let me give you some examples. In other words, it's to say truth is much more multifaceted than how we often think about it. All right, so for example, the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long, O Lord, will you look on and not rescue me? All right, what kind of a, what kind of a truth claim is that? Okay, well, you're gonna say, Well, the Bible's true in everything it says, but what kind of truth is the truth claim? How long, how long ago, Lord, will you forget me? What kind of truth is that? The prayer. Is it a historical truth? No, not at all. It's not in the category of history. You can't go and say, well, maybe perhaps you could say, well, did he really say that? Well, of course it's written. It's a prayer. What kind of a truth claim? What kind of a truth claim is the claims of the Psalms, the prayers of the Psalms? What kind of a truth is that? And it tells us that inerrancy has got to be about more than just historical facts and historical data. No, inerrancy is much deeper. It's that God has said unfailingly what he wants to say in Psalm 77, or wherever it might be, whatever psalm you, you might be reading, okay? Uh, Psalms aren't really about facts. They're about prayer. They're about singing and worshiping God, all right? Uh, in the same way, you can say that art is true. The, the art uh, historians will talk about the truth of art or the philosophers. And what they mean is that art is true when the good and the beautiful come together in one painting, one sculpture, one image. And then it has the category of truth, meaning it communicates the type of meaning it should communicate. It should say. It is what it should be. That's what they mean when they talk about true art. And so truth is not merely at all the correspondence between event and history, and then the way we communicate it. It's not like courtroom truth. Truth is much deeper. Truth instead is whatever God intends something to be. Uh, When it is that thing, it is true. So whenever something is beautiful as God intended it, we can say it's true. It's exactly what God wants it to be. Whenever the Bible communicates, a scripture communicates something that God wants, and it does it, it's true. Even if it has nothing to do with history. So, actually, it's incredibly modern to say that truth is relegated to the realm of fact checking. That's a modern way of thinking. Now, that is true, but truth has many more layers than that. It goes much deeper. Let me give you another one Uh, He is risen. Now, what kind of a statement is that one? He is risen. There's no, no surprises here. What kind of statement is it? It is historical, right? It is. It is one like Paul says, First Corinthians fifteen. If he didn't, if he didn't, then your faith is futile, right? And so there, there is, That's a historical truth claim. If it was proven that Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we wouldn't have an inerrant Scripture. But he did. So the historical facts are true, but also it goes beyond that. So here's here's one more, the last one. Uh, there were fourteen generations between Adam between Adam and Abraham. There were 14 generations between Abraham and David, and there were 14 generations between David and Jesus. Now, where do we find that one? What text? Matthew 1, right? Matthew, somebody shouted out Matthew. Matthew 1, they're 14, 14, 14. Now, if you you relegate inerrancy to mere historical data, you have a real problem when you come to Matthew chapter 1 because the point is not to say that there are literally and only 14 generations from Adam to Abraham, Abraham to David, David to Jesus. No, not at all. Although some do claim that that is the case, but they miss the point because that's exactly the opposite of the point. The point is there are so many more generations between Adam and Abraham, Abraham and David and David and Jesus. Of course there are, but why is it being communicated this way? In, in other words, if you relegate it to history, then you have to say the Bible's not inerrant. But that's not what Matthew 1 is trying to do. Matthew 1 is trying to communicate something different. Yes, all these people really did live that are listed, but so many more generations passed between them. Instead, you've got several things going on, right? You've got 14, 14, 14. 14 is the number of David himself. So in, the Jewish people knew very well that in Hebrew, the way you count, is you take your alphabet and your alphabet are also your numbers. They're your letters and your numbers. A is one, B is two in the Hebrew alphabet. And so anytime a number appears, it also looks like a word, a normal word, right? And so 14 is 464 four in Hebrew and 464 four is DVD. All right? 464, four, which is the four, number 14 in Hebrew, is what? DVD. All right? What, is it, what does it say? It says, Jesus is is David, 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 14, 14, 14. And how does Matthew 1, 1 begin? This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And the very first thing we're told about him is son of David. And he is the David, 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 king, king, king. Or 14, 14, 14, you have three set, six sets of seven, but then Jesus is the seventh seven, the true Sabbath. You've had six sets of seven, but you need the seventh. And the seventh is the Sabbath. And seven times seven is 49 and 49, is a multiple of seven and a very important number. And we could go on and on and on. There's multiple meanings here. And it is exactly the point to say this is not the historical fact. There are many more than 14 plus 14 plus 14 generations from Adam to David. And, and so if you relegate inerrancy like Bart Ehrman and others do to simply saying, well, you're, you're saying that inerrancy means that every single moment, it's pure historical fact. Like we had a video camera. then then you're going to have to deny it eventually because of Matthew 1 and and so many other places like it. But that's not what it means. All right. I'm finishing in in three minutes. Let me leave you with some things to think about um, to help help all of us in our Bible reading. Um, That means that whenever we encounter problems as we read the Bible, there's a few things we can do. One of them is we have to assume that the problem is with us. As Christians by faith, we have to assume the Bible is with us. And so Kevin Van Hooser says, inerrancy is the doctrine that God says exactly what he wants to say, but we only see it when right readers are reading rightly. That's how he puts it, when right readers are reading rightly. So of course, a skeptic is not going to buy that, of course, (laughs) Um, but we're talking to the church. And in the church, we say, uh, right readers reading rightly are those who have the spirit. And so remember last time we said that every act of proper reading is God the Father speaking, God the Son being the very content, and God the Spirit interpreting that in our hearts. That's what happens when we read the Bible or hear preaching. The triune God is there working. And so you have to be a right reader reading rightly or, or you're not going to see everything that's being offered in the Bible. Right? So that's the first thing. Just a couple more and we'll be done. Secondly, it's important to remember, however, that scripture is an ancient book, so it's not a modern textbook. It's not a modern book in the way we often expect modern books to be written, and so that means we don't go to scripture looking for scientific explanations, for example, not at all. Um, Scripture does not say very much about most things, but it does give you the norm for everything. Scripture doesn't tell us very much about geology, but it can be a real norm for a geologist, meaning that it gives you the boundaries of belief of where your study can go. If your study is leading you down the path to deny that there was a creator in the beginning, Scripture norms you. It stops you. It says, not, don't go past that. All right? But it doesn't tell you very much about geology. It does talk about rocks and gems pretty often, uh, but not in a geological sense. It's not a scientific textbook. Uh, So it speaks most often phenomenologically, meaning in Joshua, when Joshua prayed for God to help in the battle of Ai, and it says that God stopped the sun, Uh, the sun stood still, right? So that there could be a longer day, right? What might a scientist come and say about that? Grant, it's a miracle, grant that God really did it. Nevertheless, what might the scientist say about the way the Bible puts it? What's the problem? What's the problem with saying the sun stood still, even if God extended the day? How would God extend the day? What stands still? The earth Earth stands still. Yeah, thanks, Thomas. Uh, We know, now we know that it's not, well, the sun does move, but it's primarily what that controls daylight and sunlight and and, uh, nighttime. It's the movement of the earth, right? And so the scientist comes along and says, look, you've you've got an error. It says, oh, sure, maybe God did perform a miracle, but it's not the sun that stood still. That's, that's an improper claim. It would be the earth that God stopped on its axis. Uh, um, it's not a scientific textbook. We, we think that most of these claims are what we say is phenomenological. They're written as they're experienced, right? And every single one of us, we say uh, the sun is, is rising earlier and earlier every day. Uh, and going down later and later as we get away from January, right? And of course, that's the same thing. It's a phenomenological claim. The sun is not rising. Everybody knows that, right? The sun is not rising. What is happening? The earth is rotating, and yet we will continue to say that till till we die, because it's also true. It is true, because it's true by way of perception, And that's a certain type of truth. And so that's what the Bible does over and over and over again. It says there were 13,000 people at the battle. And you say, well, if I had a video camera, I would have seen 13,407. But did the person tell an untruth? No, not at all. It's phenomenological. It's the same way if you were looking over a cliff at a battle, you would say, as a historian, there were 13,000 people there, right? You would do your best. You would do your best. And that's exactly what we get in ancient texts. So we've got to remember what the Bible is and treat it in that way. Lastly, uh, inerrancy is a confession, remember, always about the autographa, the original text, the autographs, which means that we're okay, we're okay, we're not destroyed if we come and realize, hey, the ESV could have done better on this word. That's okay. If we say, well, the manuscripts might lead us to change this preposition to that, uh, you'll hear that, you'll get that, even here, because that's what's in the footnotes. The footnotes that said we, we could have gone this way because of the manuscript. So even the Bible translators tell you from the outset, that's exactly what to expect. We're not upset by that. We we fully expect that, that we have 5,700 plus biblical manuscripts that we now use to cultivate and curate the Bible. That's the most reliable document ever in human history, by far, not even close And uh, so we know that we have a reliable text and that the inspiration is found in God's intended communication. All right, so believing the Bible, uh, it has real reasons, and what we believe about it has a lot, a lot um, of substance. And it also requires in us, each of us, a posture of humble submission. That's really what we're saying, is that we come to the text uh, humbly submitting in faith and saying, I'm never going to see the originals. But because I believe in God, I believe that this is true. That's the logic for the Christian. All right, let's pray. Father, we give thanks uh, that you've given us a trustworthy word. And uh, we, we trust in it tonight, and we trust that it tells us truths about you. So as we come to prayer, um, we do it in thanksgiving for your word, and we also do it um, on the ground that your word has shown us Jesus. And so we pray to you, o Christ, tonight that you would hear our hearts in these brief moments of prayer.